So did you feel it this morning? You're like, what, what, what I feel, right? When, when, when I got up this morning and took the, the pets out early this morning, there was a chill in the air. It was, it was, I looked at it, the wind chill, not the heat index. We've been talking about heat index. The wind chill was 68. Woo! I know it's about 48 in here, but it was 68 outside. Man, it felt good. Got me thinking about something coming. Got a song in my head. Started playing again and again. You ever get one of those earworms? So I just got to thinking about how Christmas is coming. Anybody else feel that this morning? You get excited about Christmas? I mean, it's coming, right? I mean, five months from Wednesday, five months from Wednesday is Christmas. Some of you got to get on. It's 156 shopping days left. Come on. It's hard to imagine life without Christmas somewhere, right? I don't think Cracker Barrel's got their stuff out yet, do they? Do they take it down or they just leave it up all year? It's hard to imagine life without Christmas. In his most um, famous work, C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a novel about kids in England during wartime that walk into a war wardrobe and end up in a magical land called Narnia. The first one over is the youngest, Lucy, and she gets over there and she meets with a creature named Mr. Tumnus. And in the midst of that, he says to her, That in Narnia, it's a desperate situation. He said, it is winter in Narnia, said Mr. Tumnus, and has been for ever so long, always winter, but never Christmas. I'm going to tell you, there are very few things in life that are more difficult to think of than winter continually without Christmas. Dark, dreary, cold. Narnia, snow on the ground all the time, and yet Christmas never came. We've been in a series of messages um, through the book of Judges, and the book of Judges almost reads like a country, like a nation, like a time that is going through a perpetual winter without Christmas. Perpetual cold, perpetual distance, perpetual spiritual wilderness without the hope that comes in Christmas. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, or if you've been in here for any part of it, you know that as we've talked through those weeks, they have been desperate situations where the people of God have walked away from God and found themselves in terrible places, to the point that last week we heard one of the most horrific stories ever told in or out of the Bible, but especially in the Bible. Last week we saw that the book of Judges really is a book that doesn't evolve, it doesn't get better, it devolves, it gets worse. That there is a decline that happens in the spiritual nature of the people of God. We talked last week that what happens in the book of Judges is you have this moment when the people of God kind of come to a place where a lot of Americans are today, where they just want to do whatever they want, whenever they want, with whomever they want, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. I just want to do what I want, when I want, where I want, with whom I want, and as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. And the problem with that is, we talked about last week, that you can't do that. That when you do what you want, when you want, with whomever you want, it always hurts somebody. 
And at the end of the book of Judges, we get to a place where the people have been looking around to their neighbors and finding things from their gods and from their culture, and they've been doing all the wrong things, and they don't look up to God to say, what do we need to do? And it is chaos. In fact, what we have in the scripture is that when you are left to do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want, it leads to absolute chaos. The last line of the book of Judges is Judges 21-25 and it says, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did whatever seemed right to him. And when you read through the book of Judges, it is not the most encouraging book. In fact, that is one of the most discouraging endings to any book in the Bible. There's no happy ending there. There's no, and then everything turned around and then everything got better and then this happened. It just ends. And yet, in spite of that, God was working the whole time. You see, God had promised to his people that he was going to take care of them, that he was going to make them a great nation. But the reason he said that he was going to do that was because he was going to set right the world again. From the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, he says that my one of my offspring is going to come and he is going to crush the head of the serpent. And he is setting in motion in Genesis 3 what will come to fruition years later. And he calls Abram and says, listen, I'm going to make you into a great nation so that, and he tells him the reason he's going to do that is so that other nations will be blessed. So all of mankind will be blessed so that they will be a light to the world. And even when Israel decided to go their own way, do their own thing, act in their own will, away from God, outside of him, God still worked to accomplish his purpose. And here's what he did. In the midst of a dark, dark, desperate time in the history of a nation, God was decorating for Christmas. Now, how many of you are early Christmas decorators? Like, how many of you are like November 1st? Anybody November 1st? People, we got some November 1st. I see those hands, all right? How many of you are Thanksgiving weekend? Anybody Thanksgiving weekend? I, I, the proud. There's some proud Thanksgiving weekend people. What are, first of December, like December 1st, that's me. That's not us. We're actually Thanksgiving people. I got one. All right. How about December 23rd? Anybody got December 23rd? All right. There we go. I see those. All right. Here's what I love about the story we're going to look at today. You've got your Bibles. We've been in the book of Judges. You're going to turn one page over from the book of Judges to the book of Ruth. And what I love about the story we're going to talk about today is over a thousand years before Jesus arrives, God is putting into motion the plan to get him here. In the darkest moments of the nation of Israel, in the midst of the times of Judges, God is working behind the scenes with, first of all, three unexpected people to make it right. We're going to see in this story today that as he's decorating for Christmas, he uses a woman who is so angry with God that she tells anyone that will listen that God has abandoned me. He has taken everything from me. I'm crushed by him. He's going to use another woman who is a foreigner, who was born in a foreign land with foreign gods and was not even supposed to be part of God's people. And he's going to use a man 
who even though everything he looked at around him seemed to be falling apart, and there was no evidence in that moment of God working in and among his people, he chose to remain faithful. He chose to swim against the stream and buck the system and go against his culture and follow God. And it all takes place in this little book in the Bible called Ruth. Now, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about the whole book of Ruth. We're going to talk about Ruth 1 through 4. We're not going to read the whole book of Ruth, all God's people said. If you want me to, we can, all right? But we'll be here for a long time. We won't find out if Tiger wins or not, all right? And so we're going to be here. We're going to go through the whole book of Ruth little bit by little bit. And then at the end, we're going to wrap up this entire series by seeing the hope that comes from God. And we start... Where it's good to start when you start talking about a book, we're going to start in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, all right? And this is what it says. During the time of the judges. Now, here's the thing. When you read the Bible, sometimes you read that, and for the first part, that just sounds like they're just telling us when this happened. So we could go, oh, somewhere in the you know, 1100 year, 1200, 1300 B.C. But when we've been through the book of Judges for the last seven weeks, and you realize what was going on during the time of Judges, when you've walked through the book of Judges, and it says during the time of the Judges, you know that this was a spiritually desolate moment in the the history of the nation. There is a lot going on in the time of the judges. And so when it tells us that it's in the time of judges, it is not just telling us a date. It is telling us a situation. It is telling us a surrounding understanding of what's happening. And what we know here is that God's people were continually walking away from God, continually doing their own thing, continually doing what is right in their own eyes. It was a spiritually desolate moment. And in that time, there was a man who had a family. And where they were living in Israel, there was a famine in the land. Now, let me ask you this. Why do you think there was a famine in the land? Because they had what? Disobeyed God. They had gone their own way. God sent punishments. God allowed things to happen. And so there was a famine in the land. And a man left Bethlehem. It's an interesting place, right? In Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. Again, if you're looking for baby names, there are some good ones coming up. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. So here's the start of the whole story. There's a man and his wife and his two sons. Normal family. In Israel, famine in the land, they think, we got to do something about this. They can't, my family can't survive. We can't make it. Uh, we'll find out later. They apparently lost their land in the midst of all of this. So they leave and they go to Moab. Now, Moab was across the Dead Sea to the east. It was a land where the people worshipped gods other than Yahweh, the one true God. So, but they left and they went there and camped there. Now, they come up with another problem soon, and that is their sons need to get married. But as Israelites, they can't marry Moabites technically because they're not Israelites. But there are no Israelites in Moab and their sons have to get married. So they have to figure out what to do. And they finally just say, we'll just let them marry girls from here. So here's the picture. Husband, wife, two sons, both with Moabite wives. And then scripture tells us that Elimelech dies. And the oldest son dies, and the youngest son 
dies. And so now you have Naomi and two daughters-in-law. Moabite, foreign daughters-in-law, living with Naomi in Moab. And Naomi, who has lost the only three men in her life, is crushed. Within ten years, she loses a husband and two sons. And she is distraught, despondent. And she says, there's no reason for me to stay here. Apparently things have turned around a little bit there. But I can suffer and starve here as well as I can there with nobody to provide for me. So she decides to leave. And she tells her daughter-in-laws, now y'all don't have to go with me. In fact, I don't want you to go with me. I want you to stay here. I want you to find husbands, get married, have a life. You're too young. Go, go marry a good Moabite boy. Find out, have some Moabite kids. And one of them says, okay, sounds good, appreciate it. Now, she's a little more emotional than that. She says, I don't want to. And she goes, no, do it. And she goes, okay. And she leaves. And we don't hear from her again. But the other one says, no, no, I'm going with you. And Naomi says, no, 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 don't go with me. In fact, this is what Naomi says to her in, Roma, in Ruth 1, 15. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her goods, her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. Go. But Ruth, the person the book is named after, it's interesting. It's a book in the Bible about an Israelite God in the Old Testament named after a Moabite woman. Gives one of the most poetic, one of the most beautiful responses in all of ancient literature. She looks at her mother-in-law and she says to her, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. Now, where do you hear that most often? Weddings, right? Husband and wife-to-be standing in the middle of the stage, and they say it as part of their vows, or they recite it to each other, or the pastor reads it over them, that they are saying to one another, where you go, I'll go. Your people, my people, your God, my God, we're going to die. Don't let anything separate us till death do us part. That's a beautiful moment in the ceremony. But here it's even more significant than that because this is a relationship that is not a binding covenant anymore. And this isn't a marriage relationship. This is a daughter-in-law saying to a mother-in-law, when I married your son, even though he was a different nationality, God, system, and person, I became your family. And I'm going to take care of you. And so they go back. I don't think we have any idea how dangerous it was in that moment for these two ladies to travel back. Remember, we're talking about the time of the judges. It was not a safe moment for women particularly in their society. Last week we heard a story, read a story about a woman that is literally torn apart in order to show a lesson. 
These two women go back to live together alone and try to find a way. Well, she gets back into town and people start asking questions. Wait, is that Naomi? Did Naomi come back? Well, where's Elimelech? Where where are the boys? What what happened to the family? And I know this is hard to imagine, but they had town gossip back then. And they start asking and they didn't have hip Goodlettsville to ask everybody on Facebook what's going on. So they went and knocked on the door. And they said, hey, hey, are you Naomi? Are you back? I don't know if their voice was that high pitched, but that's what they asked. All right. And Naomi looks at him and you would want to talk about like a downer moment. She goes, no, that's not me anymore. She says, just call me Mara. Well, that word in life, in their vocabulary, meant bitterness. Just call me bitter. Well, that's exciting, right? Man, it's so good to have you. Good to have you back. Naomi, right? No, I'm bitter. Call me bitter. And then she goes on and lays the blame directly at the feet of God. That's what she says. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Who does she blame? The Lord. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has opposed me? He's against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. And in that moment, at the end of chapter 1 of the book of Ruth, she represents the entire nation of Israel that is looking to God and saying, God, you have abandoned us. Why have you left us? Why have you afflicted us? Why have you broken us? Why have you taken things away from us? Why have you left us empty? At the end of the book of Judges, we see a nation and through Naomi... A person who is completely broken and wondering where in the world God is. Man, I don't know if you've ever been there. We just feel like life has set itself against you and you begin to ask the questions why and you wonder if there's ever any hope, if you're ever going to get out of that. Maybe you're in a place like that today where you're like, I understand, man, I had that happen and that happened and I really don't know what to do with it. And and I don't know where God is in the midst of this. And I, I, I just don't have an answer. What I love about looking at stories in the Bible, like an entire book of Ruth, and not that it's good sometimes to like tear it apart and look at the first five verses of, of Ruth and talk through it. But when you look at the whole story, you realize the desperation that is there at the end of chapter one. At the end of chapter one, we have a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. The mother-in-law obviously mad at God, bitter about what's happened. A daughter-in-law that's going to have to provide for both of them. No man in the picture. The Moabite woman that is now the daughter-in-law living there, Ruth, doesn't have any chances to get married because no Israelite man is going to marry a Moabite woman who is a widow living in their town. It's a desperate situation. And this isn't going to be on the screen, but if you've got your Bible open, I love how Ruth chapter 2 starts. Because it's it's a well-written story. It's foreshadowing. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a prominent man of great character from Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. It gives us that picture that something good is coming. You know what I love about this? And this is giving away the ending of the sermon a little bit right now. What I love about that is this 
line, this verse, chapter 2, verse 1, is for the book of Ruth what the book of Ruth is for the Old Testament. Because when we get to the end of the book of Judges, it is desperate, it is dark, it is completely destroyed. And then the next book is Ruth. And when we get to the end of Ruth, hope has arrived. Well, at that time, it was um, barley harvest season. I know y'all know all about barley harvest season, y'all or up on all that, but I thought I'd tell you a little bit about it, all right? And so barley harvest season was happening, and, and Ruth says, hey, we got to eat, we got to, and so you use barley to make bread. It was the poorest bread, the cheapest bread. We talked about that with Gideon. And so the way they did the, the harvesting back then is that people owned large fields, they had servants that worked for them, and the servants, they would plant the barley in rows, and the servants would go and pick the barley as they went. But there was a law, according to Moses, that you couldn't make a double pass on any particular row. You had to walk it once, take everything you could get in that one pass, but if you dropped something or you left something or you didn't get something, it had to stay. Then they allowed people that were poor, impoverished, particularly widows, to come in the fields after the servants, walk behind where they had been, and pick up whatever they could find on the ground and make do for themselves, the gleanings. They also left some on the edges for the poor and the widows. And so Ruth says, hey, can I go do that? And she was like, Naomi's like, yeah, that's the only way we're going to make a living. Naomi really couldn't do it. So Ruth goes and she starts to pick. And after a couple of days, people start to talk. Who's the new girl? What's the new girl about? What's her story? What did you hear about coming back? It's Naomi's daughter-in-law. Well, she stayed with Naomi when she could have left. And they begin to have this discussion about what's happening until eventually the owner of the field, who happens to be Boaz, says, hey, who's the new girl? Now, sometimes when they when they write this story or they take this story and they make it modern. They make it sound as if Boaz is like, who is the new girl that is so beautiful in my field? But that's not implied in the text. All right. What's implied in the text is he's like, hey, I've never seen her before. Who is that? And they're like, well, you heard the story. Yeah, I've heard that story. That's her. So he goes to her and he says, hey, let me let me ask you a question. So they, they start to talk. And in the midst of talking, Boaz tells her that he has great respect for her. In fact, in Ruth, chapter two, verse 11, he says, Boaz answered her, everything you have done for your mother in law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. Now, Boaz knows that her husband is a part of his family, and so he understands that he, in this distant relative, that she has taken care of his family by doing this. How you left your father and mother and your native land, and how you came to a people you didn't know. He says, I understand how dangerous that was, how difficult that was. I'm impressed by that. Verse 12, may the Lord reward you for what you have done. And may you receive a full reward from the Lord of God of Israel, whose wings you have come under for refuge. 
So Boaz tells us, guys, let her pick whatever she wants to pick. Don't mess with her. He tells her, don't humiliate her. Don't physically assault her. Don't verbally assault her. Let her be. Apparently, sometimes the servants would make fun of people as they were picking. Hey, you're poor, whatever it is, or, or even sometimes physically abuse. And he says, don't touch her. Don't do anything to her. Let her be. And then he says this. And this is where sometimes people over-romanticize, but there is probably something to this at this moment where he even tells them, hey, when you get done, there are going to be some stalks. Take some of the stalks that you have harvested and lay them in a bundle at the end of her row. It's unheard of. Some of the first things that you took, lay them at the end. So Ruth starts coming home with stalks, not gleanings, but stalks. And Naomi goes, so whose field have you been in? And they're like, well, this is God, man. He really found favor. God has given me favor with him. And God, it's been amazing. And she says, what's, what's the guy's name? And she was like, well, his name is Boaz. And Naomi's like, Boaz? You mean Elimelech's cousin? And then she uses a phrase that's the centerpiece of the rest of the story. She says, he's our kinsman redeemer now that's not a phrase we use a lot nobody's like walking around hey have you seen my kinsman redeemer lately hey have you talked to the kinsman redeemer where's the where's the local kinsman redeemer you know i got something i need to get done but in the bible the kinsman redeemer was a huge deal there were four functions that the kinsman redeemer fulfilled in the midst of the life of a family. He was like the wealthy, rich uncle, the, the, the one that's the distant cousin or distant uncle or brother-in-law or brother who is rich. And if somebody in the family gets in real trouble, can come and help take care of them. And they had four responsibilities. Well, first of all, if they're part of their family got really poor, they could help them. They could protect them. They could take care of them. If they lost property, which we find out in this story that um, they, Naomi's husband lost his property, either from being in Moab or that they were on this property, but they couldn't work it, he could repurchase the lost property. You could redeem relatives that were sold as slaves. Redemption there literally means you went and bought them back and brought them back into the family when their debts had gotten so much they were enslaved. And very rarely... If a family needed an heir for a male, like a male relative didn't provide an heir for the family, the family line was going to die out. The kinsman redeemer could step in, remarry and take them and give an heir for the family. And so Ruth and Naomi are talking and Naomi's like, he's a kinsman redeemer. And she's like, well, he's been very nice to me. And she says, hey, here's the thing, Ruth. Um, And then she uses her mother-in-law powers. I don't know if y'all know about those, but mother-in-laws have certain powers. And she uses her mother-in-law powers. And says, hey, um, Ruth, um, I'm getting older. You need a man. You need a husband. You need somebody to take care of you. And their society in particular, Naomi's thinking, right, together it's just the two of us. But when I go, it's going to be a foreign woman without any connection to Naomi that has died, living in a land that is not her own. It is not going to be a safe environment. She says, you need a husband. And you need to go ask Boaz to marry you. Now again, this is one of the places that people do all kinds of fanciful stuff. But Naomi tells her to do it in the most proper fashion imaginable. She says, 
put on some stuff to smell good, get dressed up nicely, go see him and just say, will you redeem me? So she does. In the most respectful way possible, she goes to him and asks him to marry her, redeem her. And Boaz looks at her and says, yes, but. Just so you know, when you ask somebody to marry you, yes, but is not what you're looking for, right? Yes, but, he says, there's one that's a closer relative than me. He has the first right. He says, I'll go talk to him. We'll get it squared away. And so Boaz goes to the town square, finds this relative, brings him out. And he says, here's the deal. Ruth has asked me to marry her. I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to redeem her. But you are the closest relative. By all rights, you should be her kinsman redeemer. And I want to give her to you if that's what you want. You have that opportunity. And then in um, Ruth chapter 4 verse 5, this is the pitch he gives to the guy. He says, Boaz says, on the day you buy the field from Naomi, so here's the thing, there's a field, you can have Naomi's field if you want to redeem. You can redeem it. But when you do, you acquire Ruth, and she's a foreigner, and you know how those foreigners are, and she may not be like you think she is, but you have her as your wife. You have to have her as your wife because she comes with the property. If you buy the property, you get the wife and the family over in Moab. That's a part of this will come with it. And the wife of the deceased man is that to perpetuate the man's name on his property. And when you do that and you buy the property, the idea is you're going to buy the property to marry the girl. When you marry the girl, the idea is you have to have kids with the girl. And when you have kids with the girl, if you have sons with them, the sons get the property. You don't get the property because it's really their dad's property, but you're stepping in for them. And not only that, they become full sons of yours. And so they get part of your inheritance. So all your normal sons are going to lose their inheritance. And there's a good chance that your family could be split up more than it's ever been split up. Hey, do you want to do that? Right? In the most basic terms, you can get it. Boaz did not sell this as something that was favorable. And the guy's response is, uh, I just, I don't, I don't think that's for me. I don't think I can do that at this time. I'll, I'll ruin my inheritance and... Uh, here, you take it. You, you, sounds like, sounds like something you need to do. Doesn't sound like it's something favorable. You take it because I can't. And so Boaz redeems Ruth and marries her. There's this beautiful picture at the end of the story where Boaz and Ruth get married. They have a child. And it says in there that all the People of the town. You remember the people of the town that came to the door, knocked on the door, and and Naomi said, call me bitter? They come back to her and they say, look what God's done for you now. And there's this picture of Naomi picking the child up and holding the child and looking at it. Now, I don't know what that's like because I'm not a grandparent yet, but I've heard grandparents talk about that moment of holding their grandchild But when you're Naomi and you didn't think God even knew who you were, you know what I think is the most fascinating thing about that? Naomi says he's forgotten me. Is not only did God not forget him, we're still talking about her 3,000 years later. She looks at the child and she proclaims, her and Ruth, how blessed they are by God. 
It's a beautiful story of a singular family in the midst of a terrible time in a nation when God reminds them that He is at work. For Naomi, who thought that God had completely abandoned her and forgotten her, you see in the story that God says, I'm here and I'm working and I'm consistently doing things for your good. And if the story ended there, it would be an unbelievable story about God's faithfulness in the midst of tragedy. But it doesn't end there. There's a post-credit scene. You know what those are, right? All the superhero movies now, they want you to read all the credits. So what do they do? They put scenes in the midst of the credits to make you stay and watch the credits. It's ingenious. Although nobody really watches the credits, they just wait till the scene comes on that is in the midst of the credits. Well, there's a post-credit scene in the book of Ruth. When at the end, they give the lineage of Boaz. And it tells us this. Boaz fathered Obed. That's the child that Naomi holds in her arms. That's the child that is the promise that God had shown them that he was with them. And then it says, and Obed fathered Jesse. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And in the story of Scripture, we find out about Jesse. Because a few years later, Israel had finally got to the point where they say, this judges things isn't working for us. We need a king. Well, why do you need a king? Well, everybody else has got a king. we got to have a king. You don't need a king. We need a king because everybody's got a king. Look around. Johnny's got a king. And Danny's got a king. We need a king. Every cool kid has a king. So God says, fine, have a king. And they pick a king, and he's terrible because they pick him for the wrong reason with the wrong motives. And Saul is a terrible king, and God rejects him. And he calls to Samuel the prophet, and he says, I need you to go on a trip. And I need you to go to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse. And he goes to Jesse's house. Jesse has a bunch of kids. They say, line up the boys. They line up the boys. They go from one to another. In the midst of that, Samuel says, he's got to be the one. He looks the part. And God says, don't look at the outside. Look at the inside. They go on down the line. He says, That's, is that all your sons? Because God didn't choose any of them. He says, well, I got a young one, a little one. The runt is out in the field. Go get him. He comes. God anoints him as king. Because Phoaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. One of the coolest things about the book of Ruth, and then we're going to wrap this up, is this. Naomi, who thought God had abandoned her within three generations, has the king of Israel in her family. So Ruth, Boaz, Obed is Naomi's grandchild, Jesse is the great-grandchild, and David is the great-great-grandchild. Just a few generations, Naomi goes from bitter to having the king of Israel in her line. And it doesn't stop there. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, Nathan the prophet comes to David the king and says, Your line will rule forever. 
And when you get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, it tells us that Boaz, who was married to Ruth, is in the line of the family of Jesus. And what I love, I absolutely love about the book of Ruth is this. While the nation was in destruction and turmoil and at every turn they looked, they thought God has abandoned us. That is the moment that God chose a family that nobody really knew about at the time that was in exile in another land to bring back to the place and through the work of redemption start the family through whom Jesus would be born. He was decorating for Christmas. Now, you may decorate a month early. God was doing it a thousand years early. He was getting everything ready for us. And here's why that's good for us. Because while a nation turned its back on God, God was using someone from within that nation to provide a way to save us from ourselves when we turn our backs on God. He provided our Redeemer through a story of redemption. Scripture uses the phrase redeemed over and over again to describe what Jesus has done for us. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, you have been redeemed. You have been bought. You have been purchased by Jesus' blood for our sins. Because the truth is we are the nation of Israel that have turned our back on Jesus, on God. We have turned our back on our Creator. We have sinned. All of us have gone our own way. We have all done what is right in our own eyes and it has led to chaos and ultimately without Jesus leads to destruction. And in the midst of us sinning before our God, God said, I'm going to send my son to save you. Scripture uses the phrase redeem because what it tells us is that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for your sins and for mine. He purchased us from the slavery of our sin. He provided heirs to God in the form of the sons and daughters that would come into the family of God through Jesus Christ and his acceptance. He bought back the land of eternity that we spend with God for us. And he took care of the impoverished people that are a part of his family when he saved us. He is our kinsman redeemer. And if you're here today, and no matter where you are in life, you have yet to accept the salvation that comes from Jesus Christ, then you are wandering. And the only hope you can find comes from Him. My prayer is today that if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, that you would find a way to search your heart And see if you're willing and ready to accept the forgiveness He provides. Let's pray together. 